0: Continuing in our series through the Gospel of John this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John 14, verse 8, and we'll pick up there in a moment. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, we are unpacking uh, the Gospel of John, which is one of four first century accounts of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that uh, comes to us from the first century. And we are working our way verse by verse through the entire book, which will take us about a year and a half to do. Uh, And if that sounds intimidating, you can take a deep breath, because we're already a year in, Okay, So we've only got six months left to go as we kind of go into the second half and the final chapters of John's Gospel. In this section that we're in right now, uh, John has captured multiple chapters worth of content. I wouldn't even necessarily call it teaching in the classic sense from Jesus, but it's more his parting words and instructions to his disciples. These are in the final hours before he's arrested and crucified, John captures something that no other gospel writer captures. And so over the next few months, as you as we jump in on these teachings, we're going to continuously be jumping into the middle of, of one long, multi-chapter sort of conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, if you were here last week, you'll know that we unpacked the verses in which Jesus explains to his disciples that he is the way and the truth and the life that no one comes comes to the Father except through him, and he says in that conversation right near the end, he says, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And now the disciples are going to pick up on this statement because it's kind of a shocking statement. And and the conversation that we're going to pick up in is responding to this. Uh, Philip responds here in verse 8. This is what he says. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Philip? Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. That's a reference to his uh, miracles, signs and wonders. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. Because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name. And I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives in you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? If that's who you are, why is this uh, in the upper room and not in public? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and he will come to them "'Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. "'I do not give as the world gives. "'Do not let your hearts be troubled, do not be afraid. "'You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. "'If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, "'for the Father is greater than I. "'I have told you now before it happens, "'so that when it does happen, you will believe.' I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Let's pray. Jesus, we center ourselves on you, on your presence, on your truth, on your peace. Thank you that you do not give as the world gives, but you uh, give us a peace that passes all understanding. You invite us into a completely new way of life in your presence. Marked out, distinct from the ways of the world, and full of a peace that the world uh, cannot grasp or comprehend. That it cannot purchase or work its way into, and yet you come and give that to us. And so I pray for a sense of your peace this morning, as we unpack uh, some of the verses and concepts and the things that you laid bare before your disciples, God, I I pray for minds that comprehend or in the words of the Old Testament, for uh, eyes that see and ears that hear that we might be able to uh, receive something uh, beautiful from you that we might comprehend all that you intend to give your disciples. So we uh, wait on you, Lord. We look to you. Without you, um, all of this is is, is useless. It's just words if you do not come and inhabit this time and do the work that only you can do. So we look to you now with confidence and hope and love and peace. In Jesus name. Amen. One of the most uh, basic fundamental questions that a human being can ask and and perhaps the most, um, significant or important question we can ask is this, who is God? What is God like? Uh, This then becomes the foundation for everything else. We cannot understand ourselves apart from understanding God. Or said another way, our view of God will shape how we see ourselves and what we think life is about. For example, uh, many modern secular people, uh, including members of my own family and myself pre-Jesus, believe uh, that there is no God. That the universe somehow created itself, and that random chance, in a sense, is God. The creation of the universe, all the things that happened to lead up to you and I, were all random. And so there's this sense in which random chance created us, therefore we are made in the image of randomness. And if that's true, then we have no particular meaning, uh, no particular connection to the spiritual world or to one another. Therefore, the thinking goes, we ought to chase pleasure and avoid commitment, all the while attempting to sort of fight off the cloud of anxiety and depression that continually settles over uh, life in an empty, random universe. But notice that their view of the divine uh, directly impacts who they are, what my identity is, what I think life is about, how I ought to live moment by moment. Everything else flows out of my concept of God. Uh, The job that I choose to work, the career I feel called to, how I work, When I show up there minute by minute, my attitude, my purpose, my attention, my motivation, all of it, the way you feel when you're walking to class or commuting to work on a Monday morning, um, all of that is deeply shaped and informed uh, by your view of God, my concept of God, and therefore my sense of what is life uh, all about, Now, in the ancient world, the uh, Greeks and Romans often had uh, sort of uh, immoral or amoral assumptions about life. Uh, that ironically now mirrors a lot of what we see in uh, secular, modern secular behavior, but they arrived there for totally different reasons. Uh, as a pagan culture, they believed in a wide swath and vast array of different gods and goddesses. Uh, but if you study Greek mythology, you'll realize that their gods and goddesses really weren't that moral. You, would, you wouldn't use the word holy to describe them. They actually engaged in a lot of immoral and sketchy behavior, uh, adultery and everything else. And, and so the, in, Greek, in, in the Greek and Roman world, it was, hey, the, this is what the gods do. Surely we can do that as well. But it was um, into that world that then these Israelites came and, and eventually followers of Jesus uh, with A a radical message. In fact, as they came into the ancient pagan world, uh, they were actually labeled atheists by ancient pagans because they denied the reality and relevance of all of their gods and goddesses. The, the ancient Greeks and Romans had this view of, oh, there's all of these spirits and the, the world is just rich with all of these different gods and goddesses and spirits. And, and, and then this, this new group came along and said, actually, no, there's one God. In fact, you can throw out all that other stuff. You can throw all of that out the window. There's one true God in the universe and we know him. Uh, We have heard from this God. We have seen this God. In the burning bush, in the cloud and fire of Mount Sinai, and the desert, in the tent of meeting, and in Solomon's temple, we have seen this God. Hebrews 1 says it this way, the opening line of the book of Hebrews. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And this was the testimony of Judaism in the ancient world. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is what? One. One. There is one true God in the universe, and he has spoken to us. Come and join us. Come and know him. There was a consistent and clear proclamation to the world over the course of essentially thousands of years. But then Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene in the context of ancient Israel and says, hear me. I am. And, and of course, the first people to respond and react to Jesus are essentially thinking wow, this is, a, is the human Messiah anointed by God. He comes in this rich line of the prophets whom God has spoken to in various times and places throughout history. Now we have another prophet, a new Moses, but this one has an extra anointing on him. He is the Messiah. And Jesus responds by saying essentially, yes, but also no. I'm actually more than that. I, I am him i am i am here and and so over the course of time these israelites are wrestling with the fact of oh my gosh the, it's it's you with a capital y they they're, they're trying to grasp the nature of who this man is and jesus says yeah it's it's me i am here and what happened through the life and ministry of Jesus is that he essentially took uh, the Jewish concept of God and sort of cracked it open. There's actually nothing that Jesus does or says that conflicts with the, Jew, with the great Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's actually nothing Jesus does or says to conflict with anything that's already been revealed about God, uh, what we would call Jewish monotheism, mono meaning one the, God, one God. He doesn't conflict with any of that. He doesn't conflict with anything in the New Testament. In fact, he brings it to life. But what he does in the process is that he also pulls back the curtain and and lets us see behind the veil into the very nature of who God is. He lets us see deeper into the mystery. And what we see when he does that is something that we were not expecting. Jesus reveals to the world that God is one and that God is three. And if that sounds confusing, it's because it is. This is the starting point of our understanding of God. And, and, and even though it's the starting point for understanding God and, and the foundation of spiritual exploration, it, it's also pretty confusing. As well. In fact, for the first uh, 500 years of church history and uh, church theology specifically, uh, they were wrapped up wrestling with some of these basic questions Who is God? What is God like? How can God be three and one? Uh, How can Jesus be both God and human? What is the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Uh, These are elemental questions at the top of the flowchart, so to speak. The way you answer these questions will then begin to trickle down and inform everything else about God and the life of discipleship and what it means to be human and all of it. The way I answer these questions are going to inform my concept of marriage. What do I think marriage is? What is it for? What am I, what am I even aiming at? Uh, what's my concept of, of family? What do I think about the, the ongoing uh, racial tension and inequality in an America? In America? And, and what's that supposed to look like in the church? Jesus says, I, I want you to be one as... I am one with the father. so, so whether we're talking about marriage or, or any uh, a, a unity of diversity within the church or really anything else, it, it's, it's going to trace itself back to the way I answer these these questions. The way I feel when I'm walking to class in the morning or or I'm getting in the car to drive to my job or i'm waking up way earlier than all the people who do that because there's little kids screaming, whatever it is. The way I feel as I go about and start my day tomorrow morning actually is informed and shaped by the way we answer those basic questions. But in the same breath, they are not easy questions to answer. And, And in fact, most of the heresies that developed over the first 500 years of church history were actually attempts to answer those basic questions that went wrong. They were theories that explained parts of Scripture, but not all of it. Or explanations that just sort of imported a couple of biblical concepts uh, into cultural paradigms. Uh, people who uh, brought biblical ideas to the Greek philosophers or who relied on pagan intellectualism, or just rational and logical thinking. And all of these different things that they tried to mix and meld and import and other places they went for answers, all of them forced people into logical conclusions that were inaccurate. They said, well, if A equals B and B equals C, and then C has to equal D, and and they were wrong. And, And so what you saw over the first 500 years of church history is that you would get someone who would trace things logically, Jesus cannot be both God and human, or the Father and the Son can't be one at the same time, or whatever it is. And they would arrive at a logical statement that sounded nice. And then what would happen is that you would get groups of people who would rally around that theological idea or that school of thought, and all of a sudden it would gain momentum. There were actually periods in early church history where where the heretical groups had more people than the actual church. And so you had these huge amounts of of normal sort of everyday working class first century followers of Jesus who were trying to sort this out and trying to find their way in in the midst of all these competing voices. And so what would happen every so often is that things would come to a head in church and culture and all of the uh, church leaders from around the known world, which was basically the Roman world at the time, would come together in one place and say, we got to sort this out. We got we to get on the same page. We got to hammer this out. We have to figure out, uh, w- you know, where so-and-so is going wrong and, and what the scriptures actually say. And what they would do is they would hammer out a statement together, uh, which we call creeds, So they would hammer out these creeds and say, this this is what's true based on Scripture uh, over and against all of the other competing voices. So you have the Apostles' Creed uh, and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed. Uh, They were all born out of this basic struggle to answer fundamental questions about who God is. Who are we praying to? In whose image am I made? These are not easy questions to answer, but notice that this wasn't just the philosophers going off on some, uh, you know, rants of, oh, wouldn't it be cool to think about this stuff? It's actually Jesus who forces us into this territory. Jesus sort of forces us off the bench and into the game, so to speak. He doesn't allow us to just sit with these cute little boxy simple answers about who God is. He drags us into this place of of ambiguity and mystery and mysticism where all the lines start to get blurred. He's the one who drags his disciples into this. Here's a few examples just from this morning's passage that he says. He says, if you know me, you'll know my father... From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. I will, not only that, but I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate, the Holy Spirit. You know the Spirit, for he lives with you and will be, post-Pentecost, in you." And that's just a few examples from this one passage. But over and over again, uh, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks about himself and the Father and the Spirit in, in this way that they are distinct enough to be different. I will do this, and then the Father will do that. And yet, in the same breath, he speaks about them in such a way that they are one. And, and, and so as the early church was wrestling through this, the, the, the language that they put to it is the language of Trinity. That's, that's not actually in Scripture, but, but it was, it's our attempt to make sense of what Jesus is talking about. Say that God is Trinity. He is three in one. And here are just a few samples or examples from church history as they tried to hammer this out in in everyday language. And if these sound really deep and intellectual, uh, it's because they didn't have iPhones and they thought really deeply about things, okay? This is a sample from the Nicene Creed. They said, we believe in one God, one God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. I love this language. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Of the same essence as, or some translations say, consubstantial with the Father. Through him, all things were made. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. And then uh, just a one-liner from the Athanasian Creed, because this is so good. They said, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor separating the substance. And there's a lot more. We could keep reading, um, but we are out of time. Instead, what I want to do now is I want to turn the corner as we close uh, and talk about why this matters. Why, why did we need to get this right? Why, why should we care that God is three in one and not just one in, in a simpler sense? Uh, What does the nature of the Trinity have to do with everyday life? Uh, A few quick thoughts as we close. Uh, First off, uh, this matters because this is what God is like. And that has profound implications for society and individuals. When you know what God is like, then you know in whose image you are made. And that changes the way that we answer life's most basic questions about what you're wired for and built for and created to do. It affects all of life. Uh, God exists in eternal relationship. So think about that. In eternal relationship within himself before any age began, for all eternity past. And then he created you in his image. Okay? So you were made for relationship with God and others. I think it was my seminary professor who said, God is a family who creates family. So he's taking who he is and he's expanding the borders of that out. He created you to be a piece of that. Uh, The Trinity is the foundation for our view of marriage and family and a unity of diversity within the church. All of it. Uh, You are not a free-floating Darwinian Adam. That is a flawed view of humanity based on a flawed concept of the divine, or the absence of the divine. You are not a free-floating atom, called to reject all commitments and relationship. And, And yet, that basic assumption has now infiltrated almost every level of the public square in our nation. University, government, all of it is now working on the basic assumption that you are a free floating Darwinian atom. What does it mean to be human? What is life all about? Uh, what is the purpose of marriage? What's the goal? What's the purpose of a university? and what should they be teaching what is the purpose of our government like really you could pause and reflect on that as a follower of Jesus why does it even exist why do we have a government and and what should that government be doing all of these if you think deeply about them curiously trace themselves back to the top of the flowchart to this basic concept of who God is and what God is like, the Trinitarian nature of God. And our secular culture is currently deeply confused on this issue. Therefore, everything else gets blurry and confusing. In the decades that lie ahead, we need teachers and scientists and politicians and city planners and stay-at-home moms who are working from the assumption of a Trinitarian God who created humanity and and who's willing to hammer out the implications of that in whatever field they're called to work in. We need that now more than ever. We we don't know. What are we doing here? What does it mean to be human? That affects how you do everything else, and, and we've lost it. So we need to recapture that. Uh, Number two, many of the heresies that they were fighting in the first century are still around under new names. And so you can go and investigate things like Islam or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness uh, or even modern Gnosticism, uh, which isn't quite as visible. But you'll find underneath all of their religious language, despite the fact that they use the name of Jesus... Uh, they ultimately reject this vision of a Trinitarian God. Uh, They they fail to take Jesus at face value and and just embrace what he reveals about God. So the next time someone knocks at your door uh, asking you to convert to their religion, you can cut to the chase and save yourself hours of confusion by just asking about the Trinity. That's gonna be at the core of the problem of where some of these movements uh, get divergent and go sideways. Hey, what do you think about the Trinity? And you'll probably have some really interesting Jesus honoring conversations along the way. It, It all comes back to what you think about the Trinity. There's a lot of odd stuff out there masquerading as Christianity But when you dig beneath the surface, you see, ah, this is at the very core of who God is. We have different assumptions about his nature, about the basic nature of the Trinity as it's been revealed in and through Jesus. So the question that each person has to answer is, will I receive that, that mystery that Jesus has revealed, or will I reject that? AND GO FOR SOMETHING ELSE, MAYBE SOMETHING NEATER OR TIDIER OR SOMETHING THAT ALMOST MAKES MORE LOGICAL SENSE TO ME. NUMBER THREE, uh, THE TRINITY IS REALLY HARD TO COMPREHEND, AND THAT'S OKAY. IT'S OKAY. FOR SOME OF YOU, THIS IS GOING TO BE REALLY FRUSTRATING. Because the first question that we ask about the core of the universe is also almost the most confusing question. If I had time, I would show you parallels from quantum physics because they're digging scientifically toward the core of the universe and bumping up against very similar things that are hard to put into words and and do not make logical sense, but are true. I don't have time for that. But, but even when you just stick with theology, if, if you go and pick up a, a, a systematic theological textbook and you say, you know what? I just want to s- go into a deep study uh, of, of God and the scriptures and all of it. Typically, you open it up and chapter one, page one, like you're excited and motivated. I'm ready to learn about God and I'm confused because it starts with the Trinitarian nature of the God that we worship. And the Trinity is hard to grasp. It doesn't matter what language I put to it or what analogies uh, I try to unpack. Uh, I, at the end of the day, it will be difficult to fully come. I am asking you to believe something that you cannot fully comprehend. And, and you have to be okay with that. <laughs> That, that is very frustrating for most modern and postmodern people in the Western world. That does not sit comfortably with us. But but I can put this mystery in plain view. Uh, it, it's not hidden and yet it's beyond our grasp at the same time. This is what Stephen Boyer and Christopher Hall call a, a revelational mystery, which is a mystery that remains beyond our ability to grasp even after it's been revealed. It isn't just a secret that is now open, but a reality that has been described yet still defies three-dimensional explanation. I don't know if we will ever fully, truly understand the Trinity. So certainly in the age to come, our minds will grasp much more. But we come to it in a sense, humbled, in awe, as as children, just saying, wow, I believe that, but I cannot even comprehend how that is true. I'm going to embrace this mystery and step into it even though I can't put language to it. Or in the words of Frank Laubach, embracing Christ brings mystery, rejecting him brings despair. It's your choice. So every human being has to decide, am I going to press into this incomprehensible mystery or am I going to reject it and receive despair? Despair. difficult choice to make. That brings us to uh, my fourth and final point: You are invited into Trinitarian relationship. This is the invitation of Jesus. So often, you'll notice if you go if you read sort of all the places where this comes up in the Gospel of John, what you'll notice curiously is that every time Jesus gets going about the Trinity, which he's clearly passionate about, he starts talking and talking and before he's too deep into the conversation, his disciples get dragged into the picture. It's not that Jesus says, "Hey, me and the Father and the Spirit" Are all one, have a great time on earth. Like, I'm out. Like, I'm going back. To the, that's not how any of the conversations go. It starts off by saying me and the Father and the Spirit, but it inevitably then ends with you. These are a few examples from this morning. He says, On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father. And you are in me, and I am in you. You know the Holy Spirit, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. We, meaning Father and Son, if not Spirit as well, will come to you via the Spirit and make our home In you. Because I live, you will also live. That's just from the passage that we read this morning. It keeps going. You can read the chapters that follow. But there's this sense in which Jesus has this full picture in mind that you have been saved out of slavery to Satan's sin and death and saved into something completely different. You've been saved into this Trinitarian relationship of love in in which father and spirit and son and you now exist in this flowing web of relationships. You, You are right there getting caught up in that ongoing eternal Trinitarian love. And you may not have a great analogy to describe that to your atheist friend. You you might not have the language to put to it. it. It might feel like this incomprehensible mystery, but the invitation of Jesus is to come and enjoy that mystery. Whether you can explain it or not. He says, you can now come as deep as you want to into the Trinitarian love that has existed and will exist for all time. So on a practical level, in your day-to-day life, uh, as you pray, when you approach God, when you think about God, when you try to conceptualize him in your mind, when you turn your attention and awareness toward him throughout the day, I want you to have this conception of the three-in-one God. And it's not a huge deal, but we typically gravitate toward one image or one person. And and Jesus keeps sort of tugging and pulling and inviting you back into this place of saying, well, I'm in relationship with the spirit. I'm in relationship with the son. I'm in relationship with the father. In short, you are not alone. You will never be alone. And there is a transcendent mystery that is available to you right here and right now. Repent, Jesus says. Shift your heart, shift your mind, throw out all those old, worn out ways of life. Because the kingdom of God is now available to you. It is at your fingertips. It is is in the air that you are breathing in. And breathing out. The Trinity is all around you and within you. And He is inviting you deeper and deeper into His presence. Let's pray. Jesus, before there was us, before there was humans, before there was an earth and a sky and a sea, before there was a Milky Way galaxy or anything that we would call um, matter or particles or atoms or time, there was you. There was a eternal family of relationships. Father, Spirit, Son, infinitely loving, glorifying, lifting one another up in Trinitarian love. And as we open Scripture, one of the first lines that we see is you saying, let us make mankind in our image. In the image of the triune God. When we look in the mirror tomorrow morning before we go to work or go to class or pick up a crying baby, we are are looking at the image of someone who's made by the triune God to reflect the triune God and to re-enter relationship eternally with the triune God. Lord, may this affect the way that we see ourselves. We have to define what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be me? What What am I doing here? And what's the purpose of anything else that a human being would do? Lord, may it rest in this self-sacrificial, self-giving, triune God in whose image we are made. God, if we miss this, it's going to show up somewhere, somewhere down the line, somewhere down the flowchart. We're going to be saying and doing and thinking things that just don't make any sense in the light of ultimate reality. So our prayer this morning is simple. We say, come Holy Spirit. Would you open our minds, our hearts, our metaphorical eyes and ears so that we might begin to grasp you as you are. Lord, forgive us for for trying to make you in our image when we are made in yours. So come now, shift, change, restore our hearts because out of that is going to flow everything else that we say and think and do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to save communion till the end. Uh, I want us to jump right into worship this morning. And uh, as we do, I don't usually do this, but I'm actually going to ask you to stand with me before we worship together. And for those of you who are willing or you feel comfortable, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes as we prepare to worship. And I'm a very visual person. So I always am trying to, like, visualize God. Um, And what I want to do right now is I want to read over you a section of the Athanasian Creed. And I want you to try and picture it in your mind's eye, if you can. Just in your own way, just you and the Lord in your own imagination. I want you to try and visualize the words I'm reading over you before we worship. It says this. They said, We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit, still another. Can you picture them? But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory, equal, their majesty, co eternal. What quality? The Father has, the Son has, and the Spirit has. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father Is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit. Is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, but there is one uncreated and immeasurable being. Let's worship Him together.